0: following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Last week, to make sure we're kind of keeping with the flow of what's happening, we saw the, the deeds of the flesh, if you remember, contrasted with the fruit of of the Spirit. And, and towards the end of that sermon, I showed you that walking by the Spirit is, is really the same thing as walking in line with the gospel. Uh, if, if you missed that, I would, I would encourage you to go back and, and check that out. Uh, we also spent a fair amount of time talking about the dangers of sinful comparison. And that's an idea that actually is going to come up again today. So yes, it's, it's that big of a deal. I know we already talked about it a lot last week, but here, here we'll find it again. Um, and so today we're going to read the first 10 verses of Galatians 6. And, and I want to let you know, this, this can be a confusing set of verses, but there really is a, a satisfying spiritual meal here uh, if we take the time to chew it properly. So as I said, I hope you found Galatians 6, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10 together. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches them. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Praise God for his word. Amen. Let's, uh, let's head back to verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Now, when this says caught in a trespass or sin, first of all, we need to know that this, this language of caught, it doesn't point us to someone who is, who is hard-hearted and, and sinning intentionally. This is describing someone who has been entangled uh, in the net of sin, and, and they know they are in trouble. They are repentant, and, and they want to be untangled. And, and that's important to know. Uh, I'll explain why. This, and this is not to say here. What I'm not saying in saying that is there isn't need sometimes for us to humbly point out to someone that they're tangled up, okay? But for this process of restoration that's talked about here, to have any hope of success, there has to be humble acknowledgement on the part of the one who's sinning, Okay? If not, okay, they they are in the condition similar to where the prodigal son was before he came to his senses. It's an important part of that story. There was a point where he's eating the same food as the pigs, where the Bible says he came to his senses. And as you know, for me, just being honest, I've spent far too much time trying to drag people out of the pig pen of sin uh, when they weren't even willing to admit that, that they were muddy, Okay. And it never works. Uh, It just, it won't work. So, and on top of that, we need to consider realistically that the process of restoration that that we're talking about, it can be really arduous, even when uh, dealing with a humble and willing participant. This is almost never easy, but it's it's really impossible. What you have is somebody that is unrepentant and unwilling to admit that they're caught in sin. Uh, Jesus said plainly in Matthew 18 that if you try to tell someone that they're tangled up and they won't listen to you, uh, they won't listen to additional godly counsel or even the church, here's what Jesus said, then you have to treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. That's Matthew 18. I didn't think you'd amen that. I can't tell you how many times people have told me, oh, well, Jesus would, Jesus would never do that. Jesus would, would never kick somebody out. Jesus would never tell someone that, that, that they based on their stiff-necked rebellion, that they're not really living as if they're a part of the body of Christ, and, and thus treat them that way. Jesus would never do that. Well, I'm, all I'm telling you is this is what Jesus said, so you're going to have to go argue with him about it. It wasn't me that said it, okay? And I'm not, I, look, I'm not even thrilled about it. It's not fun when I have to do that, okay? I promise. Uh, anybody that's sane doesn't want to get into that situation. But why? Why are we saying this? Um, because stiff-necked refusal to admit or address sin is a sign that someone may not actually be a believer. Right? They they may be adjacent to being a believer. They may be uh, you know around the things of God. Maybe that maybe they're on the way. But if somebody is is standing in a stiff-necked place of rebellion, unwilling to consider the possibility that they're in error, even After somebody has come and gently and and lovingly tried to alert them to that fact, and and you go through this process, what you may find out is you don't have someone operating uh, by the Spirit of God. You can say amen to that. It's okay. You're safe. All right? And this is a sobering warning both to those who may be seeking to restore someone or to those who find themselves being sought for restoration. Okay? We need to always remember that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that applies to both sides of what we're discussing here. Okay. Um, And and if I can just say, I think we really have to wise up as the people of God when it comes to this dynamic. I think oftentimes we're foolish around these things. Um, I (laughs) want to, can I just say something really real right now? You guys ready for it? Are you warmed up? I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to dive in here. Okay. We all say that we know nobody's perfect. And we all say that we know we aren't perfect. And yet so often people are just shocked and offended when someone comes to speak the truth and love to them about the fact that they may be sinning. So do we mean it when we say we're not perfect or is that just a cute Christian thing that we say? Ouch, right? That's good. Somebody felt it how it was supposed to feel. That's right. That's supposed to cut us a little bit, man. If we were wiser, we'd be shocked and offended if a whole lot of time goes by and someone doesn't come and lovingly challenge us or point out that maybe we're entangled in sin. That's what wisdom would look like. Like maybe I'm missing the mark. (laughs) And hopefully you've got people around you that love you and know you well enough and that the doors are open for that kind of, that's, that's an essential dynamic to walking out the Christian life. That's, what, that's part of why we're always talking to you about genuine, authentic community, having real relationships, man. You need people that know you well enough to see when your feet are tangled, right? If we keep everyone out kind of at arm's distance and we're only presenting the veneer that we want people to see, you don't have that. And that's a dangerous, dangerous place to live because nobody is above the need for other pairs of loving eyes Around them, looking out for them, and calling them out when necessary. I mean, none of you would say, Oh, I'm, I hope, oh, I'm completely, I'm completely above the possibility of ever being deceived. I am fully and totally, I'm wise as God. None of you would be so foolish as to say that out loud in that way, but you do with your actions. You do with the way sometimes you react when someone tries to come and say, Hey, can we talk about this? Amen. Someone's like, ooh, I should have stayed home and made buffalo chicken dip today. I didn't know. I didn't look at the verses and see where we were going. Dang it. Got me. No, this is good for us, friends. This is helpful. Now, the, the other side of this thing is that it may be hard to receive the truth from somebody because it isn't truly being done in love. People do forget this spirit of gentleness that's discussed here. And so when the motive isn't love, it won't be gentle. If the motive is legalism or self-righteousness, then even true things are going to feel like scrubbing your skin with steel wool. Okay? And that's what you'll end up doing to somebody if you come at them out of those impure wrong motives. And so what am I saying? I'm challenging us on the one side to be open to this kind of love-motivated critique. But on the other side, if you haven't taken the time to check your motive, If your motive is not love for the person sinning and your goal isn't restoring them, that's the point here, the goal is restoration, then it's probably best to shut your yapper. Amen. The principle of restoring those who sin here, let's just be clear, it applies to believers And it works best when there is trust in real relationship present. I'm not saying it only can exclusively happen in that context, but I am telling you, certainly, it works best in that context. I'm not saying God can't use someone that, that doesn't have that to be a challenge to someone that's maybe particularly open to that or God, in some kind of sovereign way, makes that kind of intersection. But most of where this kind of really important hard work of discipleship is going to happen is within the context of real relationships and trust. Okay? Amen. Now, one thing I want to make sure is clear is that this doesn't mean, in cases of repetitive patterns of abuse or harm, that someone should stay silent. Okay? That's definitely not what I'm saying when I'm saying, you know, check your motive, and if if it ain't right, then just keep your mouth closed. When we're talking about repetitive patterns of abuse or harm, uh, absolutely something needs to be said. And as a matter of fact, in just about every case where those things are present, there will need to be additional outside help and accountability to verify and walk out a process of restoration, okay? That's really important to know. Those are are some particularly difficult dynamics. Now, there is some incredible depth and richness to this word restore that we see here. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Now, most often this word was used as kind of medical terminology, like, like resetting a broken bone. Okay, That's what this word means. And that goes deep right off the rib, doesn't it? I mean, already, that goes deep. First of all, that means that that sometimes this process of restoration, it hurts, just like setting a broken bone, but it heals. It's crucial, because if you don't set that broken bone, you just let it do its thing, you end up with gangly arms or whatever, right? Jacked up legs, we can't do that. We gotta set those broken bones. So the process may hurt, probably will, but it also heals. And secondly, it brings to mind... The imagery of, of a brother or sister in Christ who's, who's caught in sin as the broken bone. Okay, not that you're setting a broken bone for them, but that they are the broken bone. What does that mean? Well, friends, you see, we are all a part of the body of Christ. And when we are caught or entangled in sin, it doesn't just affect us, it affects the whole body. How is that? Well, it's because we're supposed to be working together for the glory of God with the same synergy that the bones and the muscle and the nerves of a body do. But when one part is broken or damaged, the effectiveness of the whole is hindered. This simple fact, should, it should add fuel to our desire for holiness. It's never just about you or me, friends. It's about us. And our love for one another, and our love for God, it is the most powerful deterrent against sin in existence. We often don't think of love as the great shield against sin. Peter did, above all else, First Peter 4. Above all else, what? Keep fervent in your love one for another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Right? There's a lot more that could be said about that, but I'm going to keep going. The same idea can be seen in another way that we see this word used in the Gospels. And this same Greek word translated restore here in Galatians 6, it was used to describe when the disciples were mending their nets. Right? So like restoring their nets. And friends, the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be like a net in his hands cast into the waters of this world for the purpose of drawing people to him. But when we allow ourselves to be distracted by the deceptions of sin, we can, we can be, I can be like a hole in the net. You understand what I'm saying? We're supposed to be a net in the hands of the master, cast into this world to do what? To preach the gospel, to love people, to care for the suffering. To walk as, and be light and salt. And in doing that, we act as a net in this world. Drawing people in to the love and fellowship that Christ offers. But oftentimes we can, we, we get off sideways, we get distracted. We get not about the Father's business, but about our own business. That, that can end up, if we're supposed to work as a unit, a net tied together. If your strand's doing its own thing, that can be like a hole, man. It can reduce our effectiveness. Same analogy really is the body. And so what does that bring us to? Well, it brings me to a hope, a prayer, that, that we would seek to stay woven together strongly and to mend each other gently when we're struggling and to fulfill the eternal purpose made possible by the death and resurrection of Christ our King. That's the hope. And I'm hoping there's, there's a lot there in just the first half of verse 1. Um, but the, the, the principles are, it's about how we, how we gently and lovingly seek to restore. It's about how we receive those attempts at restoration. And it's about keeping in mind that all of this, is it, it, none of it is, is siloed into the individual effect it may have on my life or how I feel about it. It's, it's not that localized. Because God has made us his body. God has made us one through Christ. He's swept us up into this great plan of redemption. And we're not just here fiddling around, biding our time until we get to go on to glory. There's a mission here, right? There's a purpose of why we're here. Amen. And these, what we're learning is some of the things that get in the way of that and ways that we can stop those, uh, those things from getting in the way, okay? Let's, let's look at the second half of verse one. Like, ooh, that was a half of a verse? We're in trouble. No, we're, we're good. It says, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. What does that mean? How will we be, tempt, be tempted in, in this process or around this process? Well, I think there's at, at least three ways. The first and maybe most obvious, if you've tracked with us through the book of Galatians, is that you would come to somebody who's entangled in sin, and you would come with a harsh or self-righteous attitude. So it's not that your heart is broken over the fact that your brother or sister is entangled. It's not that you have this picture in your mind of of what what is riding on their restoration, how important it is that they are brought back into joint, so to speak, right? Uh, But it's it's different motivations, like... uh, so, some kind of really weird deal where seeing them fall makes you feel better because you haven't fallen in that exact way, which is gross. That's, that's self-righteousness, and it would lead to harshness because the, one, of the, one of the most common ways where this dynamic gets broken down is when somebody who, and they probably wouldn't say it out loud, maybe sometimes they would if they're maybe particularly blinded around this, but but at least in their heart, there's this idea that they're, they're coming to challenge this person about this particular sin. And, and as far as they see it, I can't I can't believe they're doing that because I would never do that thing. Well, maybe I hope not. But boy, that's dangerous. That's a dangerous way to head into this thing. Um, to think that you're above any particular deception that you may. That, that's how Satan works, right? He's, he's the father of lies. And so for you to be so very sure that you wouldn't sin exactly this way, or it's even worse than that, because really what it is is like, oh, I'm very acutely aware of how gross this person's sin is. I wouldn't sin that way, but you know, my stuff's kind of not as bad. No, that's not the right way to look at this, right? If, if, you're, going to, if you're going to be aghast at somebody's sin, if, if you got that impulse, man, run to a mirror and be aghast there. That's the first and most important place to be aghast with somebody's sin, is with your own. And it's really only when you are actually, truly bothered by your own sin more than others, that you're even in a place to probably be a candidate to be one of those who are spiritual coming to help and restore someone in gentleness. If your default mode is to be more disgusted with other people's sin than your own, you're probably not somebody that should be trying to do this yet. Amen. <laughs> oh, man. This is fun. The second way is, is kind of an opposite. And it, it, so we could be tempted to self-righteous harshness. We could be tempted to cowardly avoidance or approval-seeking. So the opposite of kind of harsh, self-righteous confrontation would be maybe somebody who um, really kind of feels like they know whether or not they have value based on the approval of others. And so they could be tempted to just totally ignore somebody entangled in sin because they wouldn't, they'd be so afraid of offending or so afraid of coming off a certain way, or or maybe losing the approval of that person, or or people that like them and or whatever that you end up just kind of cowardly. You, you may notice someone's in real trouble. It's like, ooh, I'm not touching that. Stay over here, right? You could be tempted that way uh, and be a, an approval seeker, end up kind of cowardly. The third way, and this is, I mean, this is, I don't know why, I guess maybe it just feels like the most natural reading of this, but for a long time, especially as a, as a younger man, I, I thought this was what this verse was talking about. Maybe it's because I've heard it, I'd heard it taught that way. I don't know. But, um, the third way is, is being drawn into the same sin as we try to restore someone else. Okay? So I'm talking about three ways. He's talking about watch for yourself here because you could be tempted in this process of trying to restore in gentleness. Um, and what do I mean by that? Well, it'd be like, <clears throat> let's, let's, let's say you're, you're coming to uh, address somebody that is, is struggling, or they're entangled in the sin of, uh, you know, an- sinful anger, right? Outbursts of anger. And it, What I'm saying is, you could go into that thing looking to try to gently and with a love motivation restore them, but then if if they have an outburst of anger, then if you're given to that, then you could have an outburst of anger, and now everybody's having outbursts of anger, and you came to help, but now everyone's, you know, now it's a powder keg, right? That's an example of what I'm talking about, where you could get drawn into the the very sin you're coming to try to help and address and restore. So you got to watch yourself, Right? It'd be like, say, you know, say you know somebody and you, and you find out they've got a, a hidden gambling addiction. So, you know, you roll down to the casino. It's like, all right, I'm going to go in here and I'm going to lay hands on a for form right here in the middle of the casino, right at the, right at the slot machines. And then you get in there and like the lights are all bright. And it's like, man, it, pulling those levers does look fun. It's like you just sit down next to them and you start popping quarters in. And now, you know, now you've got a gambling addiction. It's like, well, that didn't work, right? So, guard yourself. <laughs> Don't get pulled in uh, to the same sin that you're, you're trying to help somebody with, okay? And, and like, whoo, man, how do I watch myself? How that there, Wow, there's a lot of ways that could go wrong. Should I just punt on this? Maybe I'll just say I'm not spiritual. Thus, won't be doing any restoration work, right? Like, I pass. Um, no, it's not not the way to think about it. One one thing that will really help us is, of course, the gospel. The gospel is a solid, a rock solid anchor to keep us out of those temptations. Okay. Uh, It helps us. How how do we do? How do we look out for ourselves? We look out for ourselves by looking to the gospel. How does that work? Well, think about it. The first temptation we talked about is is harsh self-righteousness in coming to do this. Well, (laughs) uh, the gospel helps you with that. The gospel helps you with the idea that you are a sinner and that you need a savior that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gospel is very clear about our status on our own. The gospel is very clear about the fact that our sin is so wretched, our sin is so heinous, the Son of God had to die on a cross in order for it to be forgiven. Right? So the, the gospel, all at once, lets us know we are, we are far more wretched than we'd like to admit or even can admit. And yet at the same time, and this is what helps us with the second temptation, we are more loved and valued than we could ever possibly imagine. Because that second temptation is what? To just stay out of stuff because I need the approval of people. Well, the gospel will help you with that. The gospel will help you with a, a, a toxic need for people's approval. Because if you truly grab onto the truth that God himself right? The great judge, the one who could see into the hearts of all people, the one who knows all the things, right? If, if he has called you worthy and righteous and his, if he's accepted you, then that hunger to, to have this, this approval of people, it, it begins to subside. If, I, if I've been approved by by the greatest of all, if I've been approved by the king of all kings, if I've been approved by the one who really is the only one that has the right to make those kinds of judgments, if he has said, because of your faith in Christ, I love you, I approve of you, you are valuable and have great worth, so much worth that it's, to me, the trade for the, the, the blood of the son of God to have you is worth it, and all of a sudden, people's approval seems kind of like, well... Take it or leave it, <laughs> right? So the gospel helps us out of those. The, that third temptation of getting, getting pulled into the same kind of sin, how does the gospel answer that? Well, when we remember that Jesus, when Jesus came to restore us, he was tempted in every way that we are and never sinned. And the same power by which he endured now lives in us through his Holy Spirit. That's part of the gospel, right? The gospel isn't just that Jesus died. The gospel is that Jesus was born lived a perfect life, died in our place for our sins, and then rose from the grave, some power great enough to bring him up out of the grave, did it. And then he promised that that same power was going to dwell in us. That is enough to stay out of getting drawn into the very same sin you may be trying to come and help somebody be restored from. Amen? The gospel, man. How do we look to ourselves? Look to the gospel. Stare at it. Think about it. Chew it. Don't ever stop looking. You can't look too much. The Bible says, Peter wrote that angels, friends, angels, eternal angels, long to look into the depth and beauty and mystery of the gospel. They've been around a long time. They've been looking at it a long time. And yet they're still enamored by the depth, the beauty, and the wonder of Christ's gospel. How dare we ever think we've seen it all. Amen. Amen. Verses two through five, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but each one must examine his own work. Then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another for each one will bear his own load. Does anyone see why these verses particularly uh, can be a bit confusing? It, they are, let me just read verses two and five, okay? So this is the bookends of what I just read. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Verse five, for each one will bear his own load. Uh, Paul? <laughs> uh, wow, bud. Okay, um, what do we do with that? Well, here's the thing. Right off the bat, okay, the two words are different, okay? So burdens, bear each other's burdens, and then the, verse two, and then carrying the own, your own load, verse five, those are, those are different words with, with different meanings. Verse two uh, is, is, is like a heavy crushing burden, okay? Imagine something carrying something so heavy, man, it's so just about to squash them, okay? That's the sense of, of that word. Verse five, that load, is, it's more like a soldier's backpack. Okay, so there's a, there's a difference here at, at just that level. And here's the thing. Paul is really, he's, he's referencing two different things, okay? They, they're close together, and so you could read it and go, I don't know what to do with that. Am I, am I helping people with their burdens? Or is everyone carrying their own load? Like, which one is it? But they're not, these aren't uh, in conflict with one another, okay? He, so let's start off with the, with the first thing. It's, it's, it's simple. You can take it at face value. For us to come alongside one another, Okay. To help bear the burdens of sin that we are stuck in, or sins committed against us, or just the difficulty of walking through a world broken by sin. For us to come alongside and help bear that for one another, that's an act of love, and it is part of how we fulfill the law of Christ, which is, and we've been through this the last few weeks, what is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is to selflessly love and serve one another. That is the law of Christ. And so this is a particular application of what that looks like, right? Paul's gone through the fruit of the Spirit, contrasted with the deeds of the flesh. We've already seen a lot of what that means. Now he's continuing to kind of spell out in more practical ways. Here's another way that this, walking in this law of love, walking by the Spirit, walking in line with the gospel. Here's one thing it looks like. It looks like coming alongside people with big, heavy burdens and you get your shoulder up under it too and you help. You help them carry it. And that can look you know, I don't have time to go into all the ways that that could look and what that could mean, but it, principally, we, should, we as followers of Christ endued with the power of the Holy Spirit, so, so I'm not making it through whatever, I'm making it through on my own strength. And so that, that means I can also look at the burdens of others and, and I'm, I don't have to sit there and calculate so much like, ooh, do I have the strength to get involved there? No, the answer is no, plainly. No, you don't, but he does. And he's in me and he's with me. And he's called me to it. And if he's called me to it, then he'll help me. Amen. So the pivot here is in verse three, all right? That's where Paul, he's again referencing the actions and motives of the Judaizers, okay? What what does he say? Uh, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, okay? Uh, That's that's a funny, that's funny, isn't it? Paul just doesn't care. It's awesome. Let's tell him exactly how it is. Uh, so he's referencing particularly the motives of the Judaizers because uh, they're trying to lay the crushing weight of the law onto people, right? So do good things and and do law things. And, and he's trying to make that a require. They were trying to make that a requirement for salvation. And so next week, we're actually going to see Paul lay out that part of their motive, all right, was it was to make a good showing in the flesh. They, they were basically thinking that they were going to have even more righteous points in heaven if they could get more people to be, holy and righteous like them, and trusting in the law for, for their salvation, which of course is dead wrong. Uh, but there's, Paul is kind of, <clears throat> he's, he's particularly, again, pointing out the error of the, these false teachers, but there, there is also, uh, there is a reality that, that the language here is, it's not just, you, you could read, here's, here's the problem with this, why it could be confusing. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So what we would probably be tempted to do oftentimes is think, ooh, yeah, that's right. When other people do that, that's silly, right? Well, here's the thing. (laughs) This has has a nearsighted example because of the flow of thought and, and connection to the Judaizers, but we are all tempted to think we are something when we are nothing. The application is not just, ooh, those dirty Judaizers or ooh, all the other people around me that are not as smart as me, right? That's not it. This is you. Take it for you when you think you're something and you're nothing, all right? And what is this, how does this happen? This happens in the context of, once again, you guessed it, sinful comparison. This is why the next line tells us to examine our own work, that's why the very next thing that's said after this is examine your own work. So what, what often happens is we're tempted to think we are something in comparison to others. We can all look around and we can find someone that we think is doing worse than us at obeying Jesus. And we can be tempted to declare ourselves to be okay as a result, right? That's, that's part of kind of foolish self-justification that we do as humans, right? Right? Whether it's, whether it's a brother or sister in Christ coming to lovingly confront us about our, our feet being tangled up in sin, or it's the Holy Spirit himself convicting us, there, there's, there can be this pivot move we do of like, ooh, yeah, okay, I feel that. Maybe, maybe I do need to deal with the fact that I'm, I'm wrong here. And it's like, well, look at that, mer- that, that person's more wrong. Look at that. I'm fine. No, look to your own work. <clears throat> We can be tempted to declare ourselves okay as a result. It's it's a lot like the parable of of the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? The Pharisee standing up close to the altar, praying real loud, God, thank you that I'm not like that tax collector back there. Of course, Jesus said the tax collector was standing in the back, so overcome with the reality of his sin, he's beating his breast and, and pleading with God for mercy, won't even look up. Jesus said one person left justified before God that day. Wasn't the Pharisee. Let's not not do that. That That whole approach, man, that is a ugly and busted way to try to deal with the guilt of our imperfection. It's not the way to go at it. There is a better and more beautiful way we see spelled out in Philippians 2. Let me read this to you. It says, do nothing... From selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. That man, that helps a lot right there. Consider others more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. That... is is the direct route out of this this sinful comparison juke game that we play. To consider every other person more important than myself. Romans says I should outdo. If we're going to be in a competition, here's what the competition should be among the people of God. I'm going to try to outdo you in showing honor. If we're going to be in a competition, I'm going to race with you to see who can get lowest fastest. That's and you're like, that sounds crazy. I know, that's part of why the world is supposed to be able to look at the people of God and go, man, something's going on. These people are nuts, but it's beautiful at the same time. And, and, and just in case you're like, well, I don't know if that applies to me. Well, here's the thing. Philippians 2 says, Jesus Christ, who was and is the highest, the King of Kings, the very word of God, right? Who's in the beginning with God, right? Jesus, the highest, went the lowest. So if that, if that creates the, the top and the bottom, we're somewhere in here, probably way more down here. What, however, however high you are, by whatever standard you'd measure yourself, you're not higher than him. And there's nothing you're going to do to get lower than dying for the sins of a wretched humanity, of rebels and wretches. The highest went the lowest. We're going to be in the middle somewhere. Am I, I don't know, man. Am I, am I being too humble? No, probably not. <laughs> That's probably, probably not your worry. Other stuff would be worth focusing on. Okay. Amen. So, so the load of verse five, in contrast to what we saw in verse two, the load of verse five that we're going to carry, it's, it's the load of our imperfect works and the knowledge that we must answer to a perfect and holy God. That's a load, man. That's a, that's a heavy backpack, all right? But if that's the case, if that's right, then what is this about boasting? Because he says, each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. Boy, that sounds off message, doesn't it? Boasting and stuff? So how do, what does that mean? Well, I, I kind of hate to do this, but I have to. We, we have to bust into next week's text for just a minute because Paul shows us how we can boast about our works. Now remember, you know we're preaching through this book and, and taking chunks of verses at a time. That doesn't mean these breaks are, are hard breaks in the flow of thought as, as the book is being written, okay? So same flow of thought. We're not that many verses beyond verse 10. Verse 14 Okay, so what is he talking about? Looking at your own works, and that way you have reason to boast in regard to yourself and not to another. How do we how do we boast as Christians yet be walk in this humility that we're being called to here? What does that look like? Verse fourteen. Listen, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what we do, man. When we, when we examine our own works, instead of looking at everybody else's to try to compare and, and, and wiggle out of this deal, when we really take a full sober look in the mirror at our own works, here's where we're going to end up. We're going to end up realizing I got one shot, one thing that I could boast about, and it ain't me. I can boast about the cross of Christ. I can boast about the fact that grace has rescued me. It's going to put you right where you belong. So yes, do look to your own works, but don't put hope in them. Look to your own works because they're going to lead you right back where all the rest of the scriptures was trying to lead you. Humble before God, declaring your need for him. May it never be that I would boast except in one thing, the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. Boy, that's, that's better than you acted like it was. If you act any more excited about any of that game later than you did right there, you need to repent. Amen. Man, that's, that's, that's the best thing you're going to hear today. I'm trying to tell you right now. That's deep. That'll help you. <clears throat> when we examine our own works, we will know we can only boast in the cross of Christ. And we need to measure ourselves by his example, not in our performance compared to another. Amen. Let's look at verses six through eight. Uh, the one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, he will also reap For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Martin Luther uh, is quoted as saying, he did not enjoy teaching these verses because it sounded self serving. And I can really relate to that. (laughs) So I'm just letting you know that right off the bat. Uh, These are among many verses throughout the New Testament. That encourage the people of God to give generously and sacrificially to support the preaching of the gospel and the equipping of the saints, which is the duty of those called to shepherd the flock of God. Okay, it's not just this. There's there's many places this principle comes up. Uh, I just want to say my so my personal uneasiness with this is is the specific emphasis on the leaders who teach them. I don't that just. Well, why, man? It's the Bible. I know, you're right. Quit arguing. I'm trying to explain how I'm feeling, all right? So just give me a minute. Guys, gosh. Why do I feel uneasy? I feel uneasy for the same reason I told you a few weeks ago in Galatians 4, when Paul appeals to the love that they had for him when he was there and the authority he should have to correct them. It's, It's verses like that. It's verses like this that I know, I know. Many wolves in shepherds' clothing, they've used those verses like that. And uh, they've used it to, <clears throat> the, And these, what, are, what are these verses supposed to be doing? These verses are supposed to be laying out what a healthy, loving, and respectful relationship between pastors and the churches that they serve should look like. That's what the verses are supposed to do. Many times you've had wolves in shepherds clothing using these verses to control and manipulate people or to enrich themselves, okay? Which is pitiful and disgusting. And however angry it makes you, I promise you, I'm more angry about it. If I'm tempted to sinful anger, it's probably along those lines, okay? So what What can I say? Well, All I can say about that at a, at a personal level is that's, that's not what's going on here. And if, if you're a member here and, and you have questions about how money is being stewarded for the fulfilling of our mission as a church, we're happy to talk about that. Uh, we can talk about any of that. It's not, it's not a problem. Stuff's not hidden. Uh, there's no hidden bank accounts. There's just one. <laughs> and uh, we've got enough in there to continue doing what God's asked us to do. Uh, not a bunch more, but he's been faithful, man. Um, we've come through the last several years, man. I know of many churches that just, they just had to close the doors. And by God's grace, here we are. And that's always been the, the case, man. Um, Love City from the beginning. You know, if you read a book on church planning, it's like, all right, you gotta have all these 10 things in line before you jump and plan a church. We, we had zero of them, okay? So why am I saying that? I'm saying that because like, our whole existence is, is, is solely by the grace of God. There's only one place to point for anything that's ever been accomplished as far as people coming to know Jesus, being discipled through the, the ministry of Love City Church. There's one place to point. It's very clear. God has done it. We, <laughs> we're just a band of misfits, man, that know we need grace and know we need Christ. And um, I'm just so thankful. And that's, that's kind of, that's what I want to be a part of. So um, <clears throat> most of you probably know this, but, but some of you may not, maybe if you're newer around here. Um, I am paid part-time by the church, but I also work in the trades as well. Uh, You may also not know this, but in in the book of Acts, when Paul told the Ephesian elders that he worked with his hands, not only to provide for his own needs while he was with them, teaching them the gospel and planting the church there, he, he worked with his hands to provide for his own needs, but also for the needs of his companions. That whole principle just resonates deeply in my heart. It's, it's part of why things are the way they are here. It uh, Doesn't mean it'll always be that way, but <clears throat> it's part of why it is now. That that hits me. It doesn't have. You don't have to feel anything about it. I'm just telling you. It hits me in the heart. There's something right and precious about that. Um. And, and I'm <clears throat> part of why. Uh, this may seem like I'm getting a little bit personal or very zeroed in in terms of application to here, but it's, it's it's because of how verse six is worded, right? It's, <clears throat> it is very kind of personal. And so I wanna take this opportunity to answer this question as well because <clears throat> someone asked me recently what my ideal situation would be when it came to like, how whether the church pays me or not or what all that looks like. And... <clears throat> I'm just, I'm just telling you that if I could have whatever I want, I would be able to generate enough income from the trades to not even need to receive a part-time salary. I'm just telling you what what I want. I'm not even talking about what's right, because it might not be right, and I'm going to say that. But <laughs> but that would be my best case personal preference. But doing that while still focusing the bulk of my attention and priority on the church has not proved possible yet. Uh, it's just not been the case. And And here's the thing, there is also this possibility that what I would, if I could build it however I wanted, right, there's a possibility that that my ideal scenario may not be the best thing for the church, because there's something to uh, Paul's summary statement in 1 Corinthians 9.14, where he's discussing some of these same things, and he says, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Okay, so there's an element in which, and, and this is part, the leaders, even way you know back when it first came up that we were going to pay me something part time, some of the leaders here who are wise and spiritual and um, you know won't let me steamroll them. Basically, um, <laughs> they'll, they'll just check me right, right there. Uh, they, they pointed out the reality that I could be doing the church a disservice um, by not allowing them to obey the verses about taking care of people that teach them the word. So, you know, here's the thing. What does it gonna look like in the future? What is, why does it look like it looks now? Literally all of that is in the hands of the Lord. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not pushing to try to do it the way I want to do it. Ultimately, we're going to be submitted to the Lord's will about it. And we'll always look at what solid stewardship looks like and have wise counsel around that. And that's how we'll move forward. But um, I, <clears throat> because of the particular emphasis in verse six, I wanted to take a minute to kind of let you know where my heart and head is about it. And it's awkward for me, okay? So if you couldn't tell, I don't know, what's my body language been like? <laughs> awkward? Okay, cool. Now, now we can get away from that. Um, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be. That's, if, I'm, if, I, if I have a, a kind of a glaring weakness as a pastor, it's probably around this. I've preached one sermon series in our 10 years of existence on giving exclusively. It's called Extravagant. You can go listen to it. I think it's a really good sermon series on giving actually. So be humble. Uh, But, um, you know, man, the Bible, and and we're gonna, so now this thing kind of pivots toward, it was very specific there about the one who teaches and all that. And that's the verse I struggle with, but it's gonna get broader here in a second. Man, the Bible does not shy away. Jesus did not shy away about talking about the spiritual implications of, of money and stewardship and all that. And sometimes because of things I've seen, uh, because of the hurt that I know many people have been caused by charlatans and hucksters, I, I probably, if there's a way I'm not serving you well, it might be that I don't talk about that stuff enough or, or, or with enough uh, force sometimes. So there you go. If, if that's the case, uh, I repent to you on that, but you know, whenever it comes up in the scriptures, we're, we're dealing with it. And so we're going to deal with it right now. You ready? <clears throat> Everyone's favorite subject, <clears throat> money and giving. Verses 7 and 8. All right, let's read those again. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, as he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So verses 7 and 8, they are not teaching something like karma in a broad sense. That's oftentimes how that can be taken. That's not what it means. How do we know that? Well, the gospel actually teaches that we don't actually reap what we sow, particularly when it comes to judgment and eternity. Amen. So glad that's true, right? Jesus got the death that we deserve so we could get the eternal life that only he deserved, right? So this, this sowing and reaping thing, it's not this... It's, it's, it's not this broad principle that applies to, to absolutely everything. But, but when it comes to what we do or don't do with the material resources God entrusts us to steward, God will not be mocked as the true owner of those resources. That's what this says right here. So, and I think oftentimes we probably, it's unlikely that we conceptualize refusing to give generously and sacrificially as mocking God but here we see it is. That's how God takes it, all right? So you, you know, <laughs> again, I'm, I, I, sometimes I'm so far over on the side, I'm not wanting to twist arms. I, I, I appreciate the verses that say, uh, God loves a cheerful giver. I don't, I don't ever want anybody to give other than because they're so grateful to Jesus for what he's done. And they, they see that they're a part of this grand plan of redemption, the body of Christ. And so what they have in their hands and the breath in their lungs belongs to God. And so they're giving out of those convictions. I don't, I don't want to juice everybody with some emotional appeal and get a bigger offering. Like that, I just, that's all of that's gross and it's problematic to me and it's done too often. But that doesn't mean we, need, we can shy away from verses that flat out tell you, man, if you're stingy with what God has put in your hands, you're mocking God. So deal with it. Get humble, get before him and deal with it if that's the case. If you're... Well, what do I know what generous is? Okay, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. When we're giving, okay, who who is our model for everything and all we're doing? It's Jesus, right? So Jesus gave everything, went all the way until it hurt a whole lot. Jesus gave and sacrificed everything. And our generosity should be built off his model. That doesn't mean mean the the only model for Christian generosity is, is the woman that through her last two copper coins in the thing, that's that's not the picture the Bible paints. But man, if Jesus gave till it hurt as much as it did, then then we can at least give till it hurts a little. It's that key idea of sacrifice. My generosity should cost me something. Me giving to God, me giving to the the furthering of his gospel, I should feel that. And that's gonna be different for every person. It's part of the reason why we don't preach a strict tithe here. I don't see that principle translated into the New Testament. And, you, and so, so there's two different kinds of people in here that just heard that. Some people are like, woo, yeah, tithes for dorks, right? And then some of you have been raised in churches where to hear me say that, I mean, that is tantamount to heresy. Like, what did you just say, my man? I've got tithers' rights. Like, whatever that even is. Ooh, I probably went too far. We can't edit it either. This is live. Okay. Um, Hold on. What do the notes say? Dang it. Well, thank you. Uh, But that one was probably a step too far. Um, Okay, so, all right, I got to fix this. Uh, Well, I can't fix that, but try to salvage this. Um, Here's here's what I'm trying to say. Some of you hear that, and, and look, man, whether whether you're like yeah, uh, I don't like tithing or or man, you know everybody should. Here's here's the thing, the, the principle we do see throughout the New Testament is is sacrificial generosity. That's that is what we see. And so um, for a lot of people, man, for a lot of people, the, the the tithe really would act as a floor to their giving, not a ceiling. And that's the problem with with with, with to me, the tithe, is, it's more of a legalistic approach to the whole thing. Like, you know, figure out your 10% and it's just like the light bill, off it goes, right? There's, there's not this, this process of like wrestling through it with the Lord to figure out what, what is it? What does it look like for me to give so that I feel it? So that there, there, there is sacrificial generosity in response to Christ's great sacrificial generosity to me, right? And so, um, there could be some that that's 5%. There could be some that that's 15. It, it, it could be larger. I mean, John Deere uh, got to, famously got to the point where he was giving 90% of his income and living on 10. I mean, that would be awesome. Like, Lord, if you're looking to do that with anybody else, here I am, you know, send me, right? <laughs> Amen. Uh, that would be cool, but <clears throat> not not there at the moment, but want to keep moving that way. Amen. All right. It says... Uh, so, in the back half of this, <clears throat> it's, verse eight in particular could seem to be teaching. This is important: that 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 seeing the material wealth entrusted to us as seed, and then sowing it appropriately into good gospel soil. That that is how we will reap eternal life, right? Look at verse eight. Doesn't it seem like that could be what it's saying? For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap, reap eternal life. So if you read that out of context, you come up with this kind of problematic idea that, that giving generously, right? That trusting in Jesus plus giving generously is how we are saved. And that would, that would fly in the face of the entirety of the argumentation of the book of Galatians and all of what the scriptures teach about salvation. Right? It can't be it. It's Jesus Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus anything ruins the whole deal. It's, it's grace through faith in Christ alone, okay? Uh, we are saved that way. But it, but it, so that's true. But it was Jesus who taught that where your treasure is, your heart is also. It was a Jesus who that said that. Oh, I hate when teach, pra- pastors and teachers and preachers talk about money. Well, go read Jesus, man. He said a lot about it and argue with him. Like, I, you know, I don't got time. All right, amen. So what, what's the summary, right? If we sow to our own fleshly desires, it may be because our heart doesn't really belong to Jesus. Oh, that's harsh. But Jesus said where your treasure is, your heart is. I can't do anything about that. I'm just telling you what he said, Okay. And there's a reason he said that. Because money, is a, it, it's, it's a very easy God to worship. It's a terrible God. Definitely, definitely isn't going to provide for you what God alone can provide, but, but it, it's, it's a very convenient one. <clears throat> so if, if, if you're only sowing your own fleshy desires, that might mean your heart doesn't actually belong to Jesus. But if we sow to the Spirit, by the leading and power of the Spirit, We are sowing into a field which we have already tasted the fruit from. And we are sowing so that others may taste it as well. There is a reaping of eternal life that comes through sowing into the ministry of the gospel. It's not not just about me. I'm not getting more eternal life. I have it or I don't. But part of what's happening is I'm, I'm so into this, man. I've tasted that fruit and I know it's the best around. It's the only one that satisfies and because of that, I'm willing to give till it hurts. Because I know that's part of God's mechanism for making sure other people get to taste that fruit. Reaping eternal life, man, that's precious. Amen. There's more at stake, man, than just some, some of the kind of legalistic, rudimentary discussions around giving that happen. This is deep. It's heart stuff, okay? So, so don't run from that. You and the Lord... And, and whoever else needs to work through that together, okay? It's important. All right, uh, 9 and 10. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. One thing I want to say to you is in verse 9, uh, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time, friends, uh, here's, here's the reality of, of that phrase, due time. Uh, due time may mean at some point in this life, due time may mean when we cross into eternity. How do I know? How, how can I not grow weary if that's the case? It comes down to one thing. It comes down to trusting the faithfulness of God to his promises. What, what has he shown you? Can, can you take what he has shown you, the promises he has kept, and translate that to a forward-looking faith and hope? and trust in his faithfulness. God will do what's right. And so, you know, and, and Peter talks about, you know, we're, we're gonna suffer with trials for a little while. Man, that little while is birth to death, <laughs> okay? All right, that's, I know, right? This, it would, I'd be a terrible cult leader, right? Because if you're a cult leader, it's like, here, do this thing and your life's gonna get better. Doesn't everyone want a better life? Come on. It's like, and then, you know, and then here we are like, Here, actually, what Christ is offering you is is a way to stand and endure when inevitably a bunch of really hard stuff's gonna happen. Why isn't everyone rushing to sign up? What's wrong? You know, like not a good sales pitch, man, but it's true. That's its pitch. It's true. It's the truth, man. It's reality. It's eternal. Hallelujah. In due time. And God is faithful to his promise. Verse 10, uh, we have opportunity, right? Do good to all people, especially the household of faith. The gospel, it frees us from the shackles of comparison where we, we use people and we use their imperfections to feel like we're worthy. We end up doing bad to people when we do that, not good to them. It frees us from feeling like we're in competition with those around us. And it brings into view, the gospel does all of this. It brings into view the beautiful truth that your good is my good and my good is your good. It starts to change the dynamics of the way we perceive good, whether it's in these very individualistic terms or it is as a part of the whole. How, why is that the case, that my good is your good and your good is my good? Because we have been made one body with one mission and one head Who is Christ. And there is no time for the futility and foolishness of fleshly schemes of self-justification. We have, however few years our King grants us to be a part of his grand plan of redemption and restoration. It may seem like a long time, but in the in, in the grand timeline of all of history, man, it's a blip. The Bible says we're but a vapor. What does that mean, man? It's like you, you blow on a mirror and it, and it fogs up and then it goes away. That's, that's what our life looks like on the big timeline. There's, there's no time. That's what he's saying. While we have an opportunity, let's do good to all people, and especially to those of the household of faith. God's plan is for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And much of how he provides that good, get this, is by us loving one another well in his name. May we follow Christ's supremely humble and sacrificial example by the power of his spirit and for the glory of his great name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you for Galatians 6, 1 through 10. Uh, Lord, even as I preach this and I've shared my heart with my friends, um, I I just wanna, wanna humbly repent to you for any part of whatever uneasiness I have with your word is a me problem. It's not a you problem. Your word is true and it's good, and it's perfect. So God, help me as a shepherd to uh, strike the correct balance there, taking into consideration all things that need to be considered, but, but also not leaving uh, your people with a deficiency in any of the teaching of your word. Uh, forgive me if I have. And Lord, I, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would make up for that deficiency in any others that I create with my imperfection for this house, for these people. Um. I thank you for what you've done here. I thank you for what we have uh, in in this congregation and this people gathered together uh, for the purpose of of loving you and and loving one another and and making disciples. Thank you for what you have done here and what you are doing here right now and what you will do here and in these folks in the future. I ask God that we would uh, be a people who are ever increasingly adapt at assessing our own motives, particularly when it comes to the great and, and difficult task of, of seeking to restore those who are, who are stumbling or, or stuck, entangled in sin. And may we be a people, may we ever grow in, in our culture here um, to, to be uh, a people that, that have the door wide open, that we make it clear to one another that I know if you love me, that you're gonna, if you see something that looks off, you're gonna mention it. That's what love looks like. Help us not to ever come at each other out of harsh self-righteousness, but also please, Lord, help us not to be cowards in seeking approval. Um, Lord, we need to find that gospel balance that allows us to, out of a love motivation, to gently restore one another, to reset those broken bones so this body can do exactly what it is you've called it to do. And Lord, help us, uh, as we're tempted to sin, to remember that we're connected to a body, that we're a part of a net uh, that it isn't just about me. My choices don't just affect me. Uh, but there is there is great things at stake. And uh, we love you, Lord. We love you so much. And, and we only can love you because you loved us first and you showed us what that really looks like. Thank you for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church located in Cincinnati, Ohio.